Thank you for joining us on Kingdom Family Talks. We'd like to wish you and your family blessings this holiday season. At Global Mission Awareness, we have the privilege of leading a Kingdom Family movement in 22 nations. Will you partner with us this year to help provide relief to churches in Pakistan and Cuba? Visit globalmissionawareness.com to learn more about our projects. Welcome to Kingdom Family Talks. We have a very special episode for you today. We have Leif here. It's the holiday season. We have the Christmas tree. It actually smells like a Christmas tree in here, but mostly because we have a candle burning and not because it's a real tree, unfortunately. (laughs) It's so good to be with you. It has been a very busy travel season for you. It has been a very busy school season for you. Uh, Most people don't know that you're studying your doctorate degree right now. And wow, let's just take a deep breath. What a journey it has been. How do you spell Sabbath? Uh, Not doctorate degree. (laughs) Um, It's just a joy to meet with you today. And we are in the middle of our end of the year giving campaign here at Global Mission Awareness. And I thought it would be really amazing to take some time to tell the story of Cuba with you. You have been going to Cuba for over 20 years now. So it would be exactly 20 to 21 years you have been, or 22 years. 22 years. 22 years you've been in Cuba. Um, And it is a very different nation than when you first went to Cuba. And um, we have an expansive kingdom family movement in Cuba. And I would love to hear from you. Uh, What was the moment that first brought you to Cuba in 1999? And what was Cuba like at that time? Yeah, and the story is actually that um, I have been looking for some places closer to the United States. And I started to look around. I had been going to South America, Latin America, to different places but there was something that was just in my spirit. And then um, I remember when God started to put Cuba on my heart and I realized the destiny that God had over the nation of Cuba. So often when you recognize what is a redemptive gift that God is giving a nation, it's connected to where the enemy has attacked. Similar like you see in the scripture where when, uh, like Moses, as I said, the enemy is trying to kill Moses because he's going to be a deliverer or he's trying to kill Jesus, because Jesus is Savior is coming. It's almost like there was this destiny over a nation of Cuba. And we kind of know Cuba. If anyone that knows the history knows back in the Baptista's days where in, in the next moment it was the party place, the mafia bosses went there. I mean, Cuba was the place where we were. The Pearl of the Caribbean. It, it was. It was the Pearl of Caribbean. And then as a result, or maybe perhaps some of the abuses that took place, we know that in 1959, the whole revolution that took place, and before you know it, people lost their property, government was taking over, and that whole nation changed, including then the believers that was in that nation didn't have an opportunity. So I started to pick up some of the history, and the more I started to learn a little bit about Cuba, I knew it was very key strategic, brought to North Korea and other parts of the world, because they also kind of been victims, a lot of the people. But I also knew that God has a destiny. God has a calling for that nation. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I didn't know before somebody said, hey, we know who you are. Because there's this old VHS cassette that had been sent. So as I started to look at Cuba, somebody that had been in Cuba told that they'd seen an old VHS cassette of uh, when I was in the Middle East. And for them, it's wow. like, if God could do that there, maybe he can do something here. Wow. And when I heard about that, 
I knew that that was, that, that was an invitation. So that mm -hmm. started a journey. And my first trip to Cuba, I went, I call it a vision trip, meaning I didn't have a mission, I didn't have anything, but I didn't want to go in and try to do anything. I just want to go in and say, okay, can I get into Cuba? And it was very difficult to get into Cuba those days. But, so you had to go to another country, but when you got there, I still remember it was a whole different world than anywhere else. And a lot of it has changed since. And, and it took me actually five, six years. That's a long story in itself that I went to Cuba before I actually understood Cuba. I, you, you think you understand something because you're seeing it, but there's two different Cuba, the one you see, and then there's the real Cuba. And it actually took me six years of going to Cuba before I suddenly realized that now I, I'm not saying I can, still can understand it because I didn't live it. I didn't live through it. I didn't have that. But at least it's almost like he showed me the other side of that curtain. So my first trip there, I still remember where I stayed. I visited that place. I had to go. I mean, they listened to things in my room everywhere. It was just one of a very, very strange wall, very different than anywhere else I had been. And I've been to places like Romania. I've been to you know, all over Eastern European country. So there's something they have in common there. But as they left the Soviet Union era, 90% of the economy went down. So they were still just coming back from all of that. Uh, that they, you, you had this little dollar store where you could get a few items, but the rest of the things you couldn't get hold of. So I still remember the Cuba we came to at that time period. And, and also the first believers. I started to work with some of the traditional denomination and a few of the other ones. I remember even one of the times they just put me in the trunk of a car and I was, they drove me dark through the alleys and then two and a half hours afterwards, I'm in the middle of a field, in the middle of nowhere and it's totally darkness. They open up the trunk and I'm coming out of that trunk and suddenly, suddenly somebody turned on the light and all these people are there and I minister. So it was all these things that looking back at it, it's kind of a, with a smile and fun. But at that time, it, it was just a whole different world for me. Wow. But it didn't take long time for me when I got to hear their stories and what they have gone through and started to learn about it. I realized the destiny that God has for that nation. And uh, so anyway, so that the early days was very unique and rare. And even when I started to minister among the believers, because it was such an us against them, because the believers had been oppressed. The believers was not able to do certain things. And, and of course, I had been in the Muslim context already where that was very similar. So I had something in common there that uh, I've not lived where you live. But I've spent these years where I do know when they're killing our brothers and sisters in the Middle East. I do know. So I had a language of understanding some of that. I also had an understanding that suddenly I don't see the terrorist Saul, but I see the Apostle Paul. I had learned already a little bit about being a Daniel, and the problem is not Nebuchadnezzar, the, the violent leader. So helping a little bit, even in the earlier days, that you have authority over what you weep over but authority where you love. But it took probably almost eight, 10 years until we're gonna learn more about that Yazir and them yeah. before we were able to shift things in because I was trying to get in the old system and even the people that was part of our team, the one we were working with, the paradigm, the lenses they had on, it was so hard because you couldn't, you couldn't change because their view is us against them. It's very severe, it's a severity toward the gospel, toward what ministry looks like. Um, there wasn't really a, a you know, in the movement that you're in, there wasn't really a full picture of Papa God or having a relationship with the Father. Um, now, and it was not kingdom, it was very religious space because you had the denomination and you had a few groups that was accepted by the government to some degree, and that's through the National Council of Churches, but that was controlled by the government. So even in our meetings, then you will have somebody from the Communist Party if you did a meeting and you need to have a religious visa. So the government control, you guys are allowed to do this here, but 
any areas that you do not honor us, we will punish you. So it was fear-based. And then on the other side, you have a few that was rebels that was not part of those churches. So you met with those people. We are the true believers, mm-hmm. not Assembly of God or Methodist or Baptist or Presbyterian, whoever. We are the real believers because we are paying a price and fighting against this evil system of people that are persecuting us. So, so I got to work in both of those different camps. But both of them, uh, as I say, it was a very tough and it was a big challenge to be able to... Uh, uh, over and over again, we were trying to find different ways to help many of them that was worn out, that was beaten up, that was on both sides of this story. And it was a lot of us against them among the believers, but especially then against the system and the government. And many of the key leaders left the country and they escaped the country eventually when they had a chance. So, and, but there was one person that I met that was part of that, and I, I think I described that that was part of the shift and change. Uh, and I don't want to mention the people that was involved with me the first five, six years, but I met a man named Alejandro Nieto. Mm-hmm. And that marked me tremendously. He was like a father of the nation of Cuba. And, and he's passed away, he is in heaven. He lived supernaturally alive, totally impossible. They've actually removed organs you cannot live without for two years before he died. But the first time I met him, and he walked in where the private setting in Melia Cohiba Hotel uh, in uh, in Havana, and you have been there. It's it's not the one on the. Uh, this is the one right on Malecon, and but we met in this room when he walked in. If only Heidi Baker and him have I had that experience. Somebody walked into the room. What happened? But he was so weak, and I still remember they had because of the morphine pump. He was eaten up by cancer, and there's just for the pain medication. And he was so weak that I said, you have 15 minutes with him. And I'd been trying for two years because I'd heard stories about him and we ended up two and a half hours and the president was there. But he shared a story about how these leaders years ago in the 80s actually had been up on this mountain to pray. The glory cloud came over them. That's the highest place in Cuba, they pray for the nation and the glory of God hit. So if you went back to those 80s, the biggest churches would be 30, 40, but then after that encounter, they came down from that mountain after the glory and God started to speak about the revival. Mm-hmm. And to see that group, it spread all over the island of Cuba and God started to show up, Jesus started to show up. And so even as all these years later, where he has paid all kinds of prices, he had probably one of the biggest churches now, but still he had paid such a high price. His father pays price. So he was a real original somebody that I learned so much from. And I got to the last two years of his life getting to know him well and meet him several occasions speaking. But he, he did mark me to understand Cuba, to understanding the people, including his own father, and hearing the stories. So it's almost like I get an insight of why it is the way it is. And then at the same time, period, somebody that was standing firm and, and loving well, he was very radical, paid a high price for standing standing off for the truth. So he marked me and the way he was dreaming of that nation. And that was connected also when I met Yazir and Aki, where the, my previous coordinator said, hey, you need to meet this guy. He's like the top evangelist and assembly of God evangelist and this little bald-headed <laughs> fire. Him and his, uh, his wife, they had just a little baby. So that's, I think that's probably close to 15, 16 years ago. So, wow. so that, and, and we also met with Alejandro Nieto together, Yazir, because Yazir also knew him. So, so there was a shift for us where the previous system I had, I knew was not working. But Yazir, I still remember at Hotel Nacional, we were in the park and then I met Yazir around the same time period. 
and Yazir came in and him and Akiv was meeting me out there, a little bit far away so nobody can, can watch you out on the field. You have seen the grass, the big lawn that is there towards Malikon. So as we were walking there, eventually we started to talk and share a little bit and I started to describe family and I started to describe kingdom and something happened to me. It's like these lights that went on. So he had kind of more religious, all he knew, I mean. Power evangelist. Power evangelist, strong, strong yeah. powerful. Yeah. Uh, but mm -hmm. yeah, so he was definitely baptized in water and in the Holy Ghost and was a lion. <laughs> but then he learned about the kingdom and it was like, and he, suddenly something shifted, I can see. So he asked me to pray for him before they left. He was gonna go to a meeting. And I prayed for him and he had a major encounter, both with the love but also with the kingdom that he describes later on. Yeah. So I knew there was a connection because of the impartation. And he just realized these miracle and presence of God hit people in the meeting on a different level he had ever seen before. Yeah. But he's also described what he felt in the body when I prayed. So we got together and it became a connection where eventually I ended up as his spiritual father, both the Aki and Yazir. Yeah. And we started to do life together. And it was so beautiful when, because he, they were so hungry and they wanted to know what does the kingdom look like? What does family look like? What is the shift? And it changed everything. It cost everything. They didn't want to leave the country. And they learned how to love their country, even love their enemies, learning how to love their neighbor. I mean, it was just this, the very thing that I've been able to, being a forerunner in the Muslim world, they were picking up on that, the new lenses of how to do things. And I started to see the price they paid, but also I started to see some of the fruits. They gave me so much. So I had to get rid of the old system that I was trying to get to work, not just there in Africa and other places, but we had a system there. And then now we started to see a healthy kingdom family system. So all of that was around 2006 or so that we started to see that change taking place. And I started, they started to think differently. There's trash on the street, let's clean it up. Or there's that clinic that is run down by the government before, why does the government not do this and that? Now it's more, how can we serve? Or how can we, and they started to operate differently. They started to be Esther's and Nehemiah's and they started to be Joseph's. And, and I started to see they started to influence. So the next time I come along, they started to have favor because they started to love the very one that persecuted them. They started to honor the very one that dishonored them. They started to accept the ones that was rejecting them. And, and they started to target people, praying for people, blessing people, and that started a process. And I started to bring them to the States eventually. So it's been a long journey we've been on, but wow. And now Cuba is probably one of the toughest. It's actually going worse than it was when I first came there in regard to there's not resources because of COVID-19 yeah, and true. they cut out pretty much the whole economy system of Cuba. Yeah, they're cut off from the world. They're cut off from the world. When yeah. we were there last time I was in Cuba, I, was, mm -hmm. I actually just saw a documentary. That's why I had to go. And I looked on YouTube and I saw Cuba. So I looked at it and that was a right now documentary. Mm -hmm. And I heard about them doing surgery on the children without having anesthesia because there was no medicine. And it hit me. And uh, the amazing thing with Yazir and Aki, I, I remember uh, just here would be one example of them that is so different than a lot of places. They were living in so tough condition. The people were struggling. It was so, so rough. I mean, they literally people that didn't have toothbrush or toothpaste for a year. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that you didn't have access. Even if you had money, you couldn't get it. So it was just one of those, but they could easily have given me a call. And I remember I was just, suddenly felt the Lord just says, I want you to call them. And we talk pretty regularly, but I called them and said, what do you need? And 
And then they shared with me some of the needs and we went with some suitcases. And but when I saw the needs and I intentionally went into some of the places in, like in Havana and I went into a drugstore, I tried in a city of over two million people to find an ibuprofen and I couldn't find it. Wow. And I have a, my pockets full of money. Yeah. So uh, we can't imagine those kind of a things. So even if you had money, there was just not things available. And so that struggle, or what we just found out here, I mean, you're paying a month's salary to get hold of a chicken. That's if you can find a chicken on the black market. Or So right. I realized that what they've been struggling with. So this last trip to Cuba, just more intentionally, we went in, we started to raise the support. We started to invest in Cuba in a differently. But the thing that touches me is that in the middle of this devastation, revival fire has broken loose. Instead of them being beaten, they have suddenly become an answer to the people's question. In the middle of the darkness, when there was demonstrations on the streets and people were disappearing or put into prison or difficulty was taking place that we watched on the news. I saw in the middle of that tension where I even asked one time, would, because I knew it was so tough, with their three sons, I said, would you guys like to come to the States or would you like? And they said, no, this is our country. Wow. This is our country. So even the next generation, we're going to invest in that. But Cuba, they, they had this whole thing of, no, Cuba is going to be that pearl of Caribbean, and we're going to be the mission force. And we're going to touch North Korea. We're going to touch the nations of the world. Yeah. And so in the middle of all of that, I was so overwhelmed by the commitment level. And so what has been your impression when you have met with them and stayed in touch? What is? Yeah, it really, the first time I went, it was 2018, and it really changed my life. I was so challenged by their ferocity as believers, um, their tenacity to not give up. Um, really, even then, the economic situation was not good in Cuba. It was, uh, they have this saying, es Cuba, and basically that means like, whatever happens, happens. <laughs> you know, like that's the thing in Cuba, whatever happens, happens. You don't know every day, you're not promised the next day. You don't know if you're gonna have ibuprofen or if everyone's gonna be okay. Um, and I was just so amazed by Aki and Yasir and how they led their church and how they were loving their community and hearing how they were serving the government, even though at that time they were still not an approved church because like you were saying earlier, the government really gets to decide if you're a legal church or not. Um, and they are well involved in that. Um, and I just left that place uh, burning and so moved by the unique move of God in that country and how... Um, just how strong the believers are, really. They, you know, when we went in twenty, when we went in twenty nineteen, they had launched the church had launched a prayer movement across the nation, um, because they had read that if you can intercede for your nation, you'll change the world. And so they really believed that. And um, I roomed with the director as we traveled to different cities to minister. And Aki at five a.m. would be on her face praying for her nation, and I would wake up to her crying out to God and. I, it just really impacted me that they truly are living what they believe. Um, and, you know, it's such a joy at Global Mission Awareness that we have really adopted them into our family. And, I mean, the kingdom is a global family. And for us to also receive from them and they how they follow Jesus has been so amazing. Um, but you had mentioned earlier that uh, in 2020, they were really cut off from the world and the economic situation was proliferated by the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, it was just a really terrible situation for families. And we have been doing our absolute best to be able to provide resources to the kingdom family there. 
Um, and there are a lot of really amazing things that we've been able to be a part of with our Cuba directors, right? Like we um, have been able to provide ongoing relief. So sending food, sending resources. When you went earlier this year, you and our executive director, David Cho, took a ton of medicine down there to help them. And Isir and Aki distribute that to the church community and beyond anyone who might be in need. There is no one left out from that in the community. Um, and we have the amazing privilege of partnering with Lighthouses of Love. Yeah. What is Lighthouses of Love? Well, this is also an interesting thing. Some, some people have been around us for a long time, maybe for her because maybe around the same time, 15, 16, 17 years ago, I had a vision for these Lighthouses of Love. And actually we started, we started, I think it was 1786 of them throughout the Middle East and in Cuba. Right. It was before Yazir came in, it was with the previous director. But I realized we were not able to sustain it. And I think just uh, uh, it's almost like we helped God with it, to be honest with you. It's looking okay. back at it, it was like God spoke something, but then we then wanted to help God. So we get a Hagar and you end up birthing a little bit of an Ishmael that you had to feed. So the way we did it was we wanted to create, and that was the dream worldwide, to have a million of these lighthouses of love, which would be first looking up, looking in, looking out, and looking forward to creating home. It's almost like a home church movement, but yeah. where people, both throughout the Middle East, but also in communist countries, could coming into the home, worship, being overwhelmed by God, so nothing else could overwhelm them, Amen. but then allowing the transformation to take place in their life, in their marriage, in the family, but then to take it out and show the goodness and the kindness and the love to all the neighbors. When people did not know what to do, they know to find that lighthouses of love, and it should be everywhere that we're gonna make it hard for people to go to hell, because every neighborhood is gonna be a lighthouse of love. Every area covering the island of Cuba, covering the Middle East, so that people will have that, and new believers that, most of the times, especially if they come from a whole different background, they could be from uh, from uh, yeah, a Muslim background or in another country, if that was from a place where you cannot convert, or but they could go safely into the lighthouses of love, experiencing a family feel, experiencing how to receive love, become love, and give love, but also bring healing, physical healing, emotional healing, deliverance, creating freedom. That is almost like a little hospital everywhere too, yeah. that where people could come. So that was the intention. But what we did is we. We, we started to get the support in, and we hired more people, brought more, and we grew so fast yeah. that we couldn't sustain it. So it's <laughs> like now, because what we did, now we had areas director and this. I mean, so in 18 months, you plant 1,700 all over. But it was an impossibility to get enough resources and finances. And, and to be able to, I realized in the end, it's burning us out. I yeah. was being burned out just to try to keep up. Every week there was just needs, need because we were trying to meet the needs in those lighthouses of love from here, and we had like a little bottleneck, and it just grew so fast. So I think later on now, God started to say, hey, I still want those lighthouses of love, but it just looks a little bit differently than what we did because we more had a system where you have the national director, regional director, then you have the locals, and then until you have a grassroots movement, which looks good in the system, but God wanted us to do something that had never been done before something that doesn't exist. So the best way I can describe it, if I say, Kaylee, the assignment for this year is for you to jump and touch the ceiling. And you could do, if you knew that that's what was required of you, you could work your leg muscles, you could work, you could do everything that you can, and eventually maybe you could say, I could do the ceiling. But that was not what God invited us to do. God says, I want you to jump and touch the moon. So, so our thing was when we're trying to how to touch the ceiling, meaning we were trying to do something that we could do based upon good system and the wisdom that we have, but would God actually invite us to do something that doesn't exist that is totally impossible? 
And the first thing we should do was just totally break down and say, that's impossible. And God says, yes. Okay, number two, now when you know it, nothing is impossible. I mean, you cannot do this, then realizing God, you can. And you are inviting us to do, what does that look like? And I think that that's what happened again when that stir came back. And after about 15 years from the first, it started to resurrect it. But now it's like, God, we, we saw that that didn't work that way. And, and that pretty much burned us out. He said, can, can you learn about my way of doing it? And so that went back to the basic. And now twice while I was in the encounter in the glory, and I know it's my life, so it's not just, but I'm going to see the one million of those before I die. And it could be I die before, but then our sons and daughters will do it. And it's going to set us up for the one billion soul harvest. So I just started to share it again fresh. But this is now with new leadership. Without even putting a whole lot of money and resources to it, we hired 10 new people like in Cuba. But they have already, I think it's like 56 just since New Year. Yeah. So we're going to go down in December. It's growing rapidly. And growing rapidly again. <laughs> yes. And they are just so hungry. But So now what I know, part of my responsibility is to be able to provide the tools that is needed so it can be reproduced. Yeah. But that you will have a plumb line in each place, that there will be a clarity because every revival pretty much that I know about in history, it was bad theology that came in and emotionally and physically they were burned out. So when revival fire, we have revival fire there now. I want to make sure that there's a plumb line that eventually that we do not going in a major on the minor. That's what often happens in revival and somebody comes up with something new and says, no, this is what this is about. This is a very simple thing. This is what God has given us. This is the plumb line so that there's a clarity of what, what this looks like. And then the second while also making sure that we do not burn flesh by burning oil of intimacy so that we can continue to burn brightly. So to put it in another way is it is like having a thousand fireplaces that the fire can be sustained. There can be light in every area of that nation. So in the next five years is to see a thousand of those in Cuba and then even more throughout the Middle East. And then we're going to, when we have that next level, we're going to move. So I was on the floor, including now in Brazil, and I didn't even want, but it came again. And I normally have not even said it public, but I've seen a million people coming to Jesus. But this time he said, no, I want you to raise up a million lighthouses of love. And that million, and last time it was a thousand, and we went above. So I realized, no, you, everybody said, you are such a big dreamer, life. And I'm like, no, God says, no, you're such a small dreamer. <laughs> yeah. You're dreaming things that you even can do. It's like jump and touch the ceiling. You spend your lifetime learning. That's impossible for me to touch the ceiling. No, I'm not calling you to. I'm asking you to touch the moon and jump. That's impossible. So he's inviting us into a mission impossible. And he's invited, well, to do that, we need prayer. We need total humility. We totally know that without, we can't do nothing. But we also have to help our people that he's inviting us into something that only he can do. And then you can co-labor with him and join him. So it is exciting now to see that they've already captured with it. I gave them a seed. They've given me a tree. Yeah. And now we're going to go back in a few weeks and we're going to see the forest that is going to be produced. So that everyone in Cuba can taste and see how good Papa God is and how loved they are. Everyone in Cuba is going to have an encounter with a God like Jesus. And if anyone is sick there and we know the medical system is not operating, there's going to be thousands and thousands of believers that knows from an identity how to lay hands on the sick so they will recover. So that these signs will follow everyone that believes and empowering the ordinary people to do the extraordinary. A clear movement throughout that nation where nobody cares who gets the credit. Sons and daughters of glory, that creation is moaning and groaning 
to be revealed. So yeah. it is not hard for me to invite our family to, to invest in the Cubans. They have stewarded this so tremendously yes. well. It's a great investment, not an expenditure. And it's almost like uh, buying stocks at Apple. I remember I wish I would have bought stocks. I bought a little bit too late. But it's like in the earlier stages when you see there's a move of God's spirit going and for us to be able to be part of history and destiny of that nation. And so I think uh, this is the invitation for us in this season that just with a little of our resources, we have an opportunity to be part of fueling the revival fire in a nation. We have the people there that will steward it well. But I think they are the true heroes and we can help the true heroes to be able to love on their nation and to disciple their nation from a power, love and wisdom paradigm. Yes. And, you know, all of the listeners, we, we consider you our family. We want to invite you to partner with Global Mission Awareness in this season to be able to, to help us to actually, you know, fund this move of God that's happening in Cuba. We get to provide practical resources like food, medicine, clothing, you know, on this trip that you're actually going to be on in a few weeks, we're sending you guys with tons of clothing for different orphanages and um, handicapped children homes that we have also invited into the Kingdom Family Movement in Cuba that we're resourcing. And you also get to help us, you know, take a lot of Leif's resources and translate it into Spanish so that we truly can um, really train and resource the Kingdom Family Movement there so that they can transform the nation from the inside out. Because like you were saying, we really want to build up healthy fireplaces to be able to contain the move in the fire of God. And um, it is so important for people to be trained and resourced in the ways of Jesus, in the kingdom movement, to be able to be really effective, to be ambassadors of love in that nation. So um, we just thank you guys so much for, for joining us today for this special episode. And if you want to give, if you want to give a one-time donation, or if you want to become a monthly partner in helping us spread the love of God throughout Cuba and to raise up lighthouses of love, uh, check the blurb for the details on how to give. And we look forward to maybe seeing you on a trip with and us. One more thing I thought yeah. about, because we've had this thing that I've done as a family, but I just felt we wanted to remind. And that every year we ask Jesus, so that's why Cuba came in, Jesus, what do you want for Christmas? Because it is his birthday. And we as a family, we have decided that the greatest gift we're going to give to Jesus. And we always ask Jesus what that is for. And this year, Cuba and Pakistan, there's a few things. This is what we're going to invest in. And I just wonder, this is my personal challenge. So if I give my child a PlayStation, I'm making sure that what I give away is greater than that. So please give each other's gift. But I also want to challenge you to do what I do as a family. We're going to give Jesus the greatest gift. Maybe that is for Cuba. Maybe it is somewhere else. But I just want to challenge you on that and pray about that as a family, that the greatest gift is you. Let's give it to somebody that, that at this very moment, their life will be changed as a result of it. Amen. Thank you so much for your time, Life. My joy. <laughs> To keep up with Leif's travels and testimonies from GMA's projects, follow us on Instagram and social media at Leif Hetland and at Global Mission Awareness. We pray that today you will be awakened to love and that others will experience the love of Father God through you.